Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my honour to bring to you Danny DeToro. Danny is a seven-time Paralympian across two sports, wheelchair tennis and table tennis. She is also a two-time co-captain of the Australian Paralympic team and currently works for Paralympics Australia as the Athlete Engagement and Wellbeing Manager. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Thanks so much, Liz. Um, greetings from Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country here in Victoria, Melbourne. Uh, it's so awesome to chat with you. So good. Oh, I'm I'm really excited about how what the things we can talk about, and as you said, we could talk for hours. <laughs> so we'll have to keep it reasonably short and uh, sweet this time, and then maybe come back for a second go round a little uh, bit later. Yours, on. whenever you're ready, Liz. Anytime. Yeah, perfect. Danny, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your impairment, and your sports history? Well, that's going to take a long time. Um, yeah, so, you know, I grew up here in, in Victoria in Melbourne, um, out in the southeast suburbs, you know, pretty active kid growing up. Uh, I had an accident when I was 13 years old. I had, um, I was at a swimming carnival and a, a retaining wall collapsed um, on our on our school. So the year seven and year eight uh, were all there. There were about 300 kids, of which maybe 20 of us went to hospital. Um, I was the most injured. Uh, I had a spinal cord injury at T11, T12. And yeah, that, that was kind of the moment everything really changed for me. Interesting, because, you know, this was out in the 80s where I never saw anyone in a wheelchair unless you mm. were looking at someone in a hospital setting or an older person. Um, certainly, I never saw anyone with a disability that I'm aware of growing up. And I had no idea. I didn't know, uh, yeah, no idea of what my life might look like. Just And, and super fortunate that I was in... A hospital setting that had Sandy Blythe, so he was um, the, the men's captain of the Rollers team, which is the Australian oh, yeah. basketball mm-hmm. men's basketball team. So he was the recreational officer. Amazing timing um, to oh, have perfect. him as yeah. He was like my go-to, and he was getting ready for the Seoul Paralympics in 1988. And you know, all I saw when this guy would talk to me, I mean. At this point, I was lying in a hospital bed. This is when you would be like prone for for four weeks. And mm-hmm. again, you know, everyone doing everything for me, bowel care, bladder care. I was getting turned every hour. And you know, that was quite a shock. But to have someone like Sandy in my day today talking to me about his, you know, getting ready for this incredible Paralympic event was like, you know, this guy's got a job, he's got a car, he's got a girlfriend, he's on his way to the Paralympics. And I just felt like, Oh, everything is possible. I didn't, I didn't see any reason why my life would be hampered by the situation I'd found myself in, mm. and was again just super fortunate. You know, Brian McNichol, weightlifter, gold medalist. Um, you know, I had these incredible humans who who visited me really early on uh, at that time, and it just changed everything about what was possible and the limitations that, you know, lots of people were putting a lot of limitations on me, but guys like Sandy mm. and Brian weren't. And it's that was a really powerful time because, you know, you, you're you being told what you can't do, what you won't do, what you have to relearn, yeah. as well as just dealing with the general trauma of a pretty yeah. significant accident that didn't just affect me at, but affected yeah, everyone. Yeah, at an age that where your body's doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things anyway. Oh, and that's the thing, you know, um, I had just gotten my first period and then that went away for like a whole year. And, um, you know, as a 13-year-old, it's that's a big time, as, particularly yeah. as, a, as a female. Um, I'm sure it's just as challenging as a male, but for me that was a really intense time. And, you know, here you are being exposed <laughs> every minute of yeah. every day oh, um, in all kinds of things. And I, I guess I had to kind of get my head around just not being too worried about what people were seeing and doing to me mm. <laughs> and just I don't know there was a degree of acceptance that this is where I'm at and you know how can I get out of this joint how can I be fit independent how can I live a really rich and fulfilling life in the same way that you know the people I was seeing like Sandy and Brian in the same way that they were living their life so yeah that was a that was a pretty crazy time and <laughs> It still has an impact, you know, like it was pretty big news here in, in Victoria and if, if ever I'm heading down the street, there are people that will still stop me and say, actually, I remember that day and now it's, you know, 30 plus years ago and 
It was. Oh, um, I, I remember that day. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm, I'm a little older than you, not that much older, but old enough that I, I remember that day, yeah. Mm, and it was significant. And I guess, um, yeah, the, the trauma still happens, you know, like my family is still quite affected by it. There are there are things mm. that we can't really talk about that are still really tough. And, you know, my dad passed away 20-odd years ago and he could still never talk about it, even, um, you know, 20 wow. years down the track. So it was... It's, it was significant and um, and it changed everything about how I do everything. But what it did do, and I guess sport was kind of one of the great things. I, I, I played a lot of sport before that accident, predominantly tennis. Uh, I was playing like local and districts, district tournaments. Um, I played my first state tournament um, the weekend before my accident, actually. And, mm. you know, it certainly wasn't going to be any Martina Navratilova, but I loved her game and just I loved playing and and was fairly competent at it and I guess you know sport becomes that kind of vehicle for what's possible so you know definitely in that kind of hospital setting sport becomes a place of the things you can control the things you can try Mm -hmm. the things that you can do and it definitely you know whether you're sport inclined or not it provides a sense of freedom it did for me anyway and even when I was playing tennis in a you know a full cast and it was really difficult to move. I was still like, oh, I'm, I can do this. I have control yep. in this space and I know what's possible. So, yeah, that changed kind of everything. And then having guys like Brian and Sandy and then a bit further down the track, women like Sue Hobbs and Liesl Tesh, you know, these mm-hmm. great people just show me the way and what's possible. And, yeah, sport became this incredible vehicle to be able to travel internationally. And I made my first Australian team when I was, 15 I, I played a Fesbik, wow. so which is the Far East and South Pacific uh, international games um, it was kind of like a mini, a mini Paralympics for kind of the Asia Pacific region and yeah that was my first trip was as a, as a 15 year old and going to Japan and I represented Australia in both basketball and tennis and I did that for a long time up until I had to you know make a decision because both you know it's a, it's a full-time gig you know being being a an elite athlete even back then you needed to yeah I was going to ask what do you time. yeah I was going to ask what do you remember about your training early on in your career yeah that's interesting because you know before my accident I was training probably twice a week um, I had maybe comp twice a week as well and then I'd go down to the courts you know whenever I could until you know the light was not able <laughs> <laughs> to kind of see anything and then we'd get the cars turned on and stuff so I yep. was kind of you know doing as much as I could and then you know when I started playing uh, international competition so my first international tournament was actually 1989 so six months after my accident and pretty much from then on I was just training whenever I could so obviously I was at school and I was training and traveling and competing as much as I could so probably in the early mm-hmm. days it was maybe twice a week while trying to fit in just everything else and everything else yeah because you would have still been going through a degree of rehab at that point in time as well well my rehab kind of was only at hospital so I was in hospital for four months um where I pretty much just understood that the way out of this joint was to be um as physically strong and independent as I could be so you know that was about could I get from the floor back into my chair unassisted could I get up giant steps could I get down them could I Mm -hmm. you know use a um, escalator did I have kind of bladder and bowel care under wraps didn't don't understand how the importance of just you know skin care and stuff and so I I understood that those were the requirements and I ripped through it and just thankfully you know Sandy just pushed me like yeah he was he was a total prick at times like he would (laughs) like one time we were at the um we're at the art gallery in Victoria. It's a major, you know, place for people to go, international travellers, everyone around. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful museum and in the in the foyer, like in the front in front of this beautiful window with all this water trickling down it, everyone's there looking at this window. And he comes up and he literally tips me out of my chair backwards. It's the first time I've been out of the hospital setting. My mum's there, everyone's watching, and I just I don't think I've moved as quickly from the floor into my chair to pretty much punch him and I'm just like what was that about and you know it was it was interesting because he did that to show my mum that I'm not fragile that I can I'm completely independent I can actually do stuff I don't need help to do stuff either 
and it was also just to show me that, you know, <laughs> you've got to stay on your toes <laughs> around people like that. So, yeah, it was good. When, when I left hospital, I felt like I could do anything and definitely having, you know, people, you know, like Sandy in my corner that I could call any time um, was just really wonderful. So the rehab kind of finished the rehab in terms of just knowing what my body, um, what I need to do, finished, but it, it took probably another seven years to really understand what living um, with a spinal cord injury, the kind that I had, and just what that meant for me and what was possible. It probably took another seven years for a lot of just feeling and movement and just mm. sensation to kind of settle down so I understood, you know, what what was pretty typical for me. Um, yeah, that yep. took a bit longer. And do you think that took a bit longer because of your age at the time and because there was a whole lot of other stuff happening? Like, I mean, that teenage puberty years is a time where your body, you know, doesn't feel like it's your body at times anyway. Do you think that kind of exacerbated how long it took for you to get a really good sense about what your impairment impact was? That's such a good question. I'm not clear about how much of that was age-related. I think... In in the initial times, I just thought, okay, I can't use my legs, so I'm not going to pay it any attention, and I'm just going to pay attention to what I could use. And at the time, like I was not able to feel below my belly button, like from the beginning of that accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it took a few years for it to to kind of get a sense of actually just where my sensation ends. But when I got an understanding of that, I just didn't really think again about anything else, and just almost compartmentalized what my body can do, it took a while to actually start to integrate all parts of me and to kind of really, Mm -hmm. um, even though my legs weren't necessarily functioning, that didn't mean they didn't have value or or couldn't be used. So it took a long time to kind of think about a reintegration of a whole body, even if I wasn't necessarily activating certain parts of that body in what would be deemed as a normal way. So it was a lot of body work. It was a lot of energy work. It was a lot of just, uh, yeah, just a, a full body integration. So whether yeah. that's an age thing, I'm not sure. I mean, I think definitely in the beginning it was like, well, if I can't use it, I'm not going to think about it and was just really geared towards what I could do and how I could do that faster and quicker. So, you know, I never even really spent too much time standing up in standing frames and stuff because I just thought, I've got too much to do. <laughs> I've got got life to get on with. (laughs) Well, really, you know, and I I probably regret that now. Like there's a degree that I regret about that now. But I also just think, you know, you can only make the decisions that you make at the time. And and I just wanted to get amongst it and there was a lot to do and I was really keen to do it. So is what it is. Cool. Can I ask you a little bit about the challenge challenge of travelling the world to compete? So obviously you started at age 15 with your first overseas trip to Japan, but as a tennis player and as a table tennis player, you would have travelled frequently over many, many years. What do you find challenging about travel in particular? Well, travel with a spinal cord injury as a wheelchair user, um, I can't stand, I can't wait there. There's a lot. There's a lot. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm also a vegan um, and vegetarian and I stopped eating meat when I was 15 as well. And so mm-hmm. there were a lot of challenges at the time around, you know, traveling particularly through Europe and even yeah. America to a degree. Yeah. From a food point of view, I mean, I used to ca- carry more food I mean used to travel with more food than I did clothing I mean there were times of, <laughs> there were times I was spending like six to six out of nine months on the road I mean this was definitely at a time where I was in the top five in the world and kind of working towards number one and you really needed to be on the road that length of time and you still do like now it's so professional yeah. that it needs to be a full-time gig but at the time I was still either studying at uni or or at high school but yeah, food was a problem, um, and that was back in the day where it was so not cool to be vegan. I used to cop so much stick for it, and the guys and the, that used to yeah, give me shit now when they're vegan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how the how the pendulum swings! Yeah, I mean the the availability of a lot of non meat based protein sources would have been hard to achieve in a lot of countries. 
Yeah, it was virtually impossible throughout Europe, to be really honest with you, which is why I just would have to travel with so much food. And, you know, thankfully mm. back then there weren't a ton of restrictions around what you could take into a country. Yeah. And then when that kind of changed, when, when countries started to get a lot more strict around what you were able to bring, then I had to kind of really adjust my diet accordingly. So probably there was a time there where I did eat some fish and I was eating eggs just to kind of accommodate that because I couldn't couldn't get enough protein and yeah, that was a real challenge. So, you know, food was always always a thing, but you know, there's always that kind of getting on an aeroplane with a spinal cord injury, and you know, I don't have bladder or bowel control, so it's always this kind of yeah. this horrible exercise in giving up all kinds of level of control and and hoping that you know when you push a buzzer, like someone will actually kind of ask you how they can help you. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, it's it's always a pretty anxiety riddled event getting on an airplane and particularly from Australia you know like as a as an yeah, athlete such a long here, you have to travel everywhere it's you have to get on long haul flights to go anywhere and yeah so which is why yeah, I, I mean, spent so much time overseas once I got there yeah yeah because the transit time was a minimum of 24 hours if you're heading to anywhere in the UK or Europe or you know they're, they're just long travel periods of time where you're sitting on a plane for nine to 12 hours mm-hmm. um it's a it's a very constrained scenario even for the for those who can get up and walk around um, yeah that's right and you know it puts a lot of pressure because you know you don't want to go to the toilet too often but then that creates issues around dehydration and then you mm-hmm. know bladder and bowel just gets messed up like you know I would just have to travel for like days in advance so that just my body could get the right way up and that takes time and it takes knowing your body and it takes understanding you know what's what's an appropriate amount of, of food to take and, and liquid to take while you're traveling and, and what kind of foods are you eating that kind of are, are going to help you manage yourself better on once you land and it's a, it's a massive task um, but you know once I kind of found my way it was it was pretty easy and it was just about you know finding good books and and just being able to manage yeah. my mind mentally and and just deal with you know pressure and stuff was always an issue so you know once you kind of figured out how it works for you and how you can find ways to kind of make sure pressure isn't a problem and all those things then then it was Mm. pretty easy now is your impairment you're a complete spinal cord injury do do you get any neural function in your legs any pain or anything like that yes i'm complete at t12 um Mm -hmm. but i do get tons of phantom pain and, and that happened from the day that they sat me up after that month right and yep. it was it's kind of gotten better over the last 30 years though it is daily and, and there are days where they're just little stabs but there are other days where I'm out of action for quite extended periods of time and I think that's probably one of the biggest impacts is, is that kind of pain and, and the fatigue of pain afterwards and how do mm. you manage that and that's a really uh, that's a definite challenge and there are lots of little things that I kind of do on a daily basis to try and kind of keep that at a workable place but in terms of like actual feeling um yeah I don't have anything below kind of almost like hip function or feeling Mm -hmm. so yeah it's 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 been pretty stable for a really long time which is kind of helpful um I, I did um so I'm also well I haven't practiced Chinese medicine for a really long time but I kind of went into that kind of field a long time ago and there are definitely times where I can put kind of needles into different parts of my feet and I can actually feel that. So, you know, you know oh, wow. that there's a certain neural networking that's kind of happening yep. even though, you know, you're not necessarily like, oh, move your big toe and your big toe moves, but you know that there's mm-hmm. a connection and just because you're not necessarily moving that part of your body or you don't have like direct sensation, that doesn't mean there isn't a functionality that's happening through it. So yeah. it's been a really um, mm. incredible exercise in exploration around what it means to have a physical body, <laughs> which is really yeah. interesting, and just kind of how you operate it from a, a seated position. It's been pretty crazy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> There's so many questions I have in my head, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep keep us tracking along the sports line. What about your transition to table tennis? That happened post-London. Paralympics? Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Life is funny. And, and in <laughs> some way, I would have thought I'd be 
playing table tennis uh, at this point in my life and particularly at a Paralympic level and, and a really high performance level. You know, London, I, I kind of got to the Paralympics at London. Just getting to those games was really challenging. I, I prolapsed a couple of discs in my neck uh, the year yeah. before and that kind of temporarily paralysed my left arm for a good six months. And mm. it was just, you know, it was the first big injury I've ever had in a 30-year career and it really knocked me about. And I kind of got to the end of that Games and just thought, oh, man, I'm I'm cooked. And I was so exhausted. Like I'd kind of been on the road for a really long period of time just to kind of get my ranking back up for London. Yep. And it just took such a toll. And by the time I came home from London, there was just so much going on that I was just so compromised in so many different ways. I wasn't healing very well and ended yep. up kind of with a burn that put me out for another year and a half after London. So I was just at this all-time yep. low. And while I didn't consciously quit tennis, I, you know, coming back after a year and a half, just seemed like one mountain too big to climb and mm. there were lots of changes happening within tennis anyway you know my plan had been just to kind of stay in the top eight do the do the tournaments I really love but spend more time being a Chinese medicine practitioner and and just kind of being home you know I'd been on the road for 30 years and my family yeah, had hardly seen me my <laughs> partner hadn't seen me and it's such a selfish life I mean it needs to be because that's what's required but you know I was also kind of ready to start being home a bit more and just kind of traveling when I liked rather than when I because I had to for so long yeah but yeah so that kind of year and a half of, of dealing with that burn um by the time I kind of could sit up for a period longer than an hour I, I was really itching to kind of do something and in London you know I'd I'd um shared an apartment with with Millie Tapper who's actually in Australia we only have one Paralympian who's also an Olympian and that's Millie and you know we just would joke about hitting balls and on our last day in London we, we hit a few balls together and it was super fun but it was very clear that yep. I'm a better tennis player than I am and table <laughs> tennis and that table tennis is a whole other you know realm of technical just incredible sport that I was just like no way this is this is awesome but I'm pretty crap at it and Oh, but you know, a the court's a lot smaller. <laughs> B the movement patterns have to be an awful lot faster. Yeah, that and just every you know how you actually hit a ball, the the, the, yeah. the muscle groupings you're using are really different. And so, you yeah. know, I've been playing tennis since I was eight years old. It's there's so much that even if I haven't hit a ball for six years, I'm still instinctively hitting stuff as a tennis player, which is just so frustrating. But yeah, I mean, after that burn, I kind of thought, well, table tennis would be a fun thing to do. You know, it doesn't require a ton of moving around a court. I'm not going to sweat heaps. From my neck point of view, my neck quite likes that. I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. looking right up to, to hit a serve. And it was something that I thought I could do and kind of just get amongst it, see people, be a bit active, have a bit of fun. And, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I really loved the community, actually. Like, I, you know, yeah. as a... I'd been such a high-performing athlete in a sport that is so isolating. Yeah. You know, as a tennis player, I didn't have a club anymore. I was travelling internationally by myself sometimes with a coach. But it's a really – it's amazing lifestyle, but it's also very lonely and isolating. And I didn't have a team around me. I didn't have a lot of people on the road. And, you know, when I kind of got to this table tennis environment, there were just all these really beautiful people who were super welcoming and, and just – really thoughtful and sharing all of their knowledge and support and excitement and it was just a really lovely space to be in so mm. I kept you know just hitting some balls it was something I could do and it was something that I was really enjoying and you know I got asked to kind of fill a draw in the lead up for Rio and I know how hard it is in this country you know in Australia we don't have a lot of people with disability playing para sports so it's really important that the people who are there who are able to actually kind of actively compete so that we can get you know, athletes kind of either representing at a Paralympic level or just being able to travel. So I understood, yeah. you know, that me being able to be a part of this draw helped the sport in this country. I ended up winning that event, which was actually a wild card <laughs> to the Rio Paralympic Games, much to my surprise as much as anyone else's. It didn't mean I was the best. It, it, I mean, as a tennis player, I know how to manage myself mentally and that very much helped and I just knew that I just needed yep. to get it ball on a table and 
table tennis, particularly in the, in the wheelchair division, is still a, a very much a development sport here in Australia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was it was quite a shock. But um, and I genuinely wasn't thinking about saying yes. I was very mindful that I that was my first tournament and <laughs> I was no way ready <laughs> to play at a Paralympic level, even though I'd won a wild card to it. And, and I think you know Kate McLaughlin, who's the chef de Michon. Uh, she was the chef in, in Rio as well as Tokyo. She kind of got wind that I was potentially not going to take that wild card and gave me a call and said, you know, we've got some plans for you. I, I would really like you, you to be team captain of, of the Rio Paralympic team. And um, oh, wow. that was amazing. Like that kind of really shifted, you know, how I thought about taking on, first of all, you know, going as a table tennis player, even though I knew that I'm the worst <laughs> and that it was the beginning of a journey, like, and so much yeah. unlearning needed to happen. And, you know, I was absolutely thrown in the deep end. Like, you know, Rio was actually my third tournament ever. Oh, man. Um, and it yeah. was my second international. Um, it was <laughs> quite a shock. You know, my first international, I went to Korea. I lost 13 matches in a row. That had never happened in my whole life. And, I'm like, mm. what am I doing? This is so bad. And, you know, you forget you forget what it's like. You know, when you're so proficient at something, you forget what it's like to be really shit and, and really <laughs> To be new. back learning again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was, yeah. as, as a 40-year-old, going, what is happening? Like, and I just, it took a, I had to really just check myself and remember that we've all got to start somewhere and this is what starting looks like. And I'm in an environment where, so many other people have got 20 years experience on me and that's what I was like as a tennis player. And so it was a big reframe and a big ego check mm. and a big, just a reminder that, uh, yeah, everyone has to start somewhere and that it's okay to start somewhere. Um, you know, I've got a lot of expectations on me. It's, it's hard to come from a place where you're the best at something to being the worst at something for myself mm. as well as you know, how kind of other people manage their expectations of what's, of you and what's possible for you and, so that was pretty strange, but you know, taking on that Rio wild card and more importantly that that co-captaincy role with Kurt Fernley was, without a doubt, one of the most rich and rewarding um, moments of of my sporting career. Mm. So much so that you then doubled it up with one in Tokyo as well. Oh, amazing, isn't the it? Co-captain. Like, yeah, yeah, and I'm, again, I'm mindful that you know the region for for table tennis, it's 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 not as strong. So I was able to kind of defend that wild card title, and yeah, when they asked me to to co-captain again, it you know that's kind of the stuff of dreams, isn't it? You know, we we did a lot of work. So Kurt Fernley and I did uh, so much work bringing our team together. It's it's a, a Paralympic team that lives across a massive continent. Um, we've got a lot of athletes that live overseas as well, and you know, that kind of one every four year opportunity to come together. Uh, we felt that there was room to bring everyone early to actually start thinking about what it means to be a part of this Australian Paralympic team. And we did a lot of work on team culture and team values. And mm-hmm. it really kind of changed the way that I guess we communicate, you know, the importance and what it means to be an Australian Paralympian and being able to kind of have another cycle to really embed that in the next generation of athletes that you know Tokyo would have been their first games mm. as well as all of the stuff that COVID threw up yeah you know that was it was a real honor it was a real privilege it was a lot of stress it was tons of anxiety but I do feel like you know I would have preferred for me to take on that anxiety and ask those questions and kind of you know be that kind of sounding board so that our athletes didn't have to and I think that's what happened. You know, we delivered a team where everyone was actually, in the end, really stoked and loved it. Like yep. that yep. to me says everything that a team can come away from what's the most probably challenging games we've ever had and say, that was amazing. Can we do that again? You're like, mm. oh, my God, please no. But yeah. yay that you feel like that. So, you know. Yeah. yeah, you don't want the athletes all bent out by the experience at that time. And can I ask in terms of... The team itself, the, the table tennis team, it seemed to be a larger team that went to Tokyo than uh, went to Rio for Australia in the table tennis space. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the biggest team um, Australia has ever produced. Lots of reasons. You know, the, the qualification requirements changed from Rio to, to Tokyo, which meant we were just able to qualify a lot more athletes across the different mm-hmm. classifications. 
And we had three, three athletes that left China, uh, became Australian citizens and then competed for Australia. So we had like three incredible top layer athletes as well as, you know, so many more Australian Paralympians that would have qualified ideally for Rio, but just kind of weren't able to just, just because of the way the system set up. So this was incredible. We had so many and yeah, it was an incredible privilege to be a part of that table tennis team as well and and to to really be courtside while some of the greatest matches uh, ever seen. It was so awesome, mm. so proud and and so lovely. Like okay. I think for me it really shows how welcoming the Australian team is and, and I'm really glad that, you know, our, our three Chinese athletes really felt that and it was it was really cool just to kind of hear them speak about what it means to kind of compete for Australia and what it means to be a part of the Australian Paralympic mob and and the way that the team embraced, you know, them and, and the way that the country embraced, you know, these athletes. Yeah. To me, this is the great part of what it is to be an Australian and I was just super proud. Perfect. Can I ask a nutrition-related question, seeing as it is a para-sports nutrition podcast? How do you see your nutrition's changed or the demands of the sport? Have that Has that changed over time for you and, and have you had to focus on your nutrition more or actually do you feel like you're you've always had a reasonably good setup to support your your training effectively yeah that's such a good question because you know when I started it was you know 1989 was my first tournament and they were the days that people weren't necessarily taking wheelchair tennis really seriously you know they would play a match no one would be stretching not too many people cared about what they were eating I was surrounded by a ton of adults they'd be you know having a couple of beers or after a match and um, it's a different world it was a completely different world and when I entered it I was already an athlete I was already pretty conscious about what I was eating um, as I said I stopped eating meat I stopped eating bread and I was like Oh, I don't know, 18, like, you know, my family's Italian, like they were just mortified. So um, I didn't <laughs> eat meat, I wasn't eating bread. It was like, I didn't drink coffee. It's like, you're the worst Italian. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of entered this sport. I was, I was doing yoga, I was stretching, I was, you know, largely vegan. Like I kind of entered it understanding the importance of, of keeping in, in a good physical space. I was doing some meditation. So, like, even, you know, back then, like, those were kind of things that no one else was doing. Again, mm. I got a ton of stick for it, but I just didn't care. Like, it's kind of – I felt better doing it like that. You know, gluten intolerant wasn't a word that people used, but I I realise, you know, I am. I've kind of my, – my blood markers say that. I haven't had a biopsy, but don't need to because you'd still do the same thing. Yeah. So I kind of stopped eating a lot of bread. I didn't feel great eating it. And so, yeah, I kind of feel like in the beginning I had some really good, healthy kind of systems set up that were really good for me and that really worked for me. I don't – I know that that doesn't work for everyone, but that was really good for me. And so Mm -hmm. as a 20-year-old and kind of going even into my 30s, I felt like, you know, weight was something I could kind of maintain. And I think that's the thing, you know, that's kind of spinal cord injury – and for me particularly, I'm pretty big boned. I'm I'm pretty you know I'm pretty typically Italian, <laughs> and I've got to be really careful. Like I love sugar, and I kind of you know it's kind of my drug of choice really. So I need to kind mm-hmm. of really sort that out. And often I just can't buy it. So I've always been aware of the things that are kind of the things that will tip me over the edge. And you know, so even then I was kind of training as if this was a full-time most important thing for me even though I was still working and studying and all those things so for 20 years probably not much changed there were some tweaks in terms of my diet in terms of just like protein intake and how I kind of managed that yeah yeah I, I think the real big shift has kind of come in my 40s when what I'm really noticing is that kind of real metabolism shift as as a female spinal cord injured not being able to yeah, just not metabolise probably as quickly as I used to. Mm-hmm. Playing table tennis is definitely that, that kind of output and what my body requires is really different as well. Like I'm, it is it is a very physical game, but nowhere near in the same way that for tennis. You know, you're training for tennis so that you can compete for three hours in 40 degree heat. Yeah. Like that's what you're training for so that you can do that comfortably. And it's a very different sport mentally it's exhausting but from a physical point of view from that kind of output point of view it's really different but so lots has changed in that way too so how I'm burning and I'm kind of 
I've been kind of slow off the mark to shift that because I'm also in the middle of bloody menopause, which is hilariously <laughs> not fun. So no. that's also shifted how my body deals with food. And I love food. Like I love food. I It's, it's a tough one because I know that I just need to be eating a whole lot less, but I love food yeah. so much. So that's probably a shift really for me. You know, it's not so much and it's what really I'm hard eating, to it's change. Yeah, it's really hard to change that habit of what you're used to serving yourself out portion size when you've got a transition into, you know, a different framework. It's, you know, bringing some awareness back into, you know, your serving sizes, for example. And that takes, that takes a bit of time to adjust. Oh, it really does. And it's a real conscious one too that you kind of got to do mm. every single day. Like, you know, there are days where I still feel like I'm eating like a tennis player, whereas actually, you know, it's adjusting to so many things, to to my sport, to my age, to my metabolism, to a whole ton of things. And yeah, there's there's a lot going on. And this is probably yeah. the toughest time, I think, in my life when I think about food and I think about my relationship to food and I think about what I need from food. And yeah, this is probably the toughest one and mm. it's still adjusting and my body is still adjusting and I haven't quite settled in terms of that kind of shift in hormone stuff and you know how you manage that as a as an athlete mm. right now I'm in the thick of a really interesting change in in my life and there are days where I feel like I'm going well and other days where I'm like this is horrible <laughs> so <laughs> you know it's a, yeah. it's a definite learning curve that's for sure yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing as the athlete wellness and engagement officer? Yeah, manager? this is such an incredible role. I mean, you know, we talked about this role pre-Rio. I think what was really evident to me and to the Australian Paralympic chef, Michonne to Kate and to the CEO at the time, Lynn Anderson, was that we weren't really prioritising mental health. We weren't prioritising any sort of support and well-being this was before the AIS had kind of shift their focus into athlete well-being um, yeah. and there weren't really any the national institutes were doing kind of ACE stuff so it was around you know education and employment but in terms of around mental health and athlete welfare just for current athletes but for for retired um, athletes there just really wasn't a lot mm. of that we didn't have a lot of language around that so you know my role as Rio co-captain I found myself just being that kind of role already like coming yep. out of high school I, I did a, a double psych degree I did a lot of work um, in youth services I, I worked in the juvenile justice system for a really long time before I went into Chinese medicine so it, it's a definite part of my background and it's where I kind of sat pretty naturally just having conversations asking people how they're going trying to find ways to support them not so much as an athlete, but more as a person. Um, and that kind yeah. of whole person approach is how I've always looked at people, whether it's working in a, a psych environment, in a detention environment, or in a in a clinic treating as a Chinese medicine practitioner environment. It's seeing the whole person in front of you and how can you kind of best support the person mm-hmm. in front of you. And, and so that was very much my captaincy role. <laughs> was kind of, you know, having these conversations with people and and linking and and it was really clear that that was something that we certainly weren't doing with our current crop of athletes and we absolutely hadn't done that with with our retired Paralympians who, Mm. you know, there's so, so many gaps there and so many really traumatic experiences for so many as well as just the really, you know, poor approach that most sports take to when an athlete retires you know they kind of mostly don't hear from anyone ever again and it's horrible and completely disrespectful and and unnecessary so you know it's kind of having those conversations with Paralympics Australia after Rio and said you know look this is I think would be a really valuable role that we could kind of really be supporting our current athletes as well as our alumni and just thankfully you know Lynn was really uh, aware and mindful of that. Kate has always been super supportive of that. And then they offered me kind of this role that at the time I practically made up and it was just kind <laughs> of, you know, how do we support our people? What does that look like yeah. if you're retired? What does that look like if you're currently competing? And it was just great timing because it really coincided with the Australian Institute of Sports athletes, wellbeing and engagement work they were doing yeah yeah so and it's been really wonderful because from those get from those really early conversations around the mental health referral network 
a lot of conversations around how we support athletes. I was able to have those conversations really early and and kind of be that voice for that alumni group that don't have a voice anymore, be that voice for um, our current crop of athletes that don't necessarily feel safe enough to have that voice because that is still an issue, that kind of psychological safety within sport is still an issue. We've still got a long way to go, but I do feel like over the last five, six years, we're definitely increasing the services that are available to either current or, or retired athletes and, and just that awareness around what's there and, and we're definitely changing the way that I think we we kind of transition athletes out and transition being not just retirement but all kinds of things, you know, dealing with injury and illness injury, and starting yep, thinking about yep. how you have a family and compete at the same time. Like transition is all kinds of things, not just that kind of retirement mm-hmm. phase and and Paralympics Australia are really committed to kind of supporting athletes through that and and providing those services and not just for our athletes but for our staff as well. Like I think that's the new shift is I think we're starting to um, what we've seen is like an 80% increase in athletes using the services of the mental health referral network. So that wow. athletes being able yep. to have access to social workers, counsellors, psychs, psychiatrists, that's for free, 12 sessions a year. It's amazing. But what we're kind of noticing Fantastic. is that – yeah, so good. Like athletes are taking it up. And so for me, that's, I've, obviously that's concerning that lots of people are taking it up, but I would rather they take it up than not. And, you know, that we've got kind of people service, accessing those services is super important. But for me, that next conversation is around how do we make sure, you know, coaches do that? Because when, when coaches yeah. are accessing it, then it becomes a destigmatization that really destigmatizes that conversation between the athlete and the coach. And I feel like that's the real gap still. Yeah, got a long way yeah. to go, but you know now it's great. You know I get athletes that will kind of contact me directly and ask, you know, how can they tap into stuff? What's available? This is really fantastic, and I've got we have a lot of links with employment agencies as well. So there's a lot of work we're doing across a number of different things to keep athletes, current and alumni, engaged, and mm. and I guess kind of hoping that there's opportunity for our alumni to feel that there's ways that they can give back to the sport, give back to community. Yep. And, yeah, that, that's a bit of a, a work in progress. But yep. certainly our current crop of athletes, they all know that there are every opportunity for them to get whatever support they need uh, in a way that's really safe for them. And for me, that's the biggest and greatest thing that we've been able to do over the last few years. And that's an amazing legacy after your 30 plus years in being an athlete yourself and coming from, you know, not having any support services really to being able to leave, to lead that legacy for the team and for your, for your colleagues. Um, I think that's, that must, you must feel incredibly proud about that. Yeah, thanks Liz. I actually do, you know, it's, I can't lie, like there were times within me as a tennis player that were really horrible periods of time where mm. incredible darkness, incredible isolation, some really, you know, scary thoughts that were very isolating um, and there was nowhere to go. Like even when I would kind of mention those things, people just had no idea what to do with it. It was just like, oh, you're just being run for the hill. Yeah, pretty much just this emotional female. Hopefully you'll just get over it and... Um, <laughs> or actively call me weak like it was pretty you know this was like you're number one in the world and you're you know got you're you're working part-time and you're doing all these things and instead of kind of creating a supportive environment for that it was actually just demoralize you and just tell you that you're the problem and so I know I'm not alone in that experience I know a lot of athletes have had even more horrific experiences than that and Mm. I guess I've seen a lot of it I've heard a lot of it I've experienced it myself and you know, the hope is that you can kind of leave any, for me, the hope has always been that I can leave a place better than I found it. And, you know, knowing that there are so many opportunities for athletes, like I appreciate you still need to reach out. You, there's an act, there's a point where you need to take action yourself to kind of do stuff. But I do feel like there are definitely more, more things available even when anyone is ready to do that. And, you know, just even me being in this role, that allows that kind of bridge conversation so that we can kind of work out what is a good place that you're kind of having, you're speaking to someone that is a really safe place to speak to, that you're being heard, you're being acknowledged and respected and supported. And that 
in and of itself is a completely new um, environment for sport. And I know we've still got a long way to go. We don't have it right across the board. Some sports are doing this stuff super great. Others are still horrific. And we still have lots of cracks that people are falling through. But I feel like those cracks are sealing. There is more awareness. And, you know, that I, and if I can kind of support that and be a vehicle for change, then that is awesome because, yeah, yeah. It doesn't well, need to it be has like such that. A, no, and it has such a huge impact on all aspects of being able to perform as an athlete. It has an impact on food choices and nutrition, on self-image, on motivation to train, on how you self-care. Like, there's so many things that get impacted by whether you have good mental health and and good support systems around you, and whether you don't. And I think you know we. It would be ignorant of us to to pretend otherwise in, in a para sports nutrition podcast that everything comes down to a very logical, seamless mm-hmm. <laughs> process. I mean, there's so much that interplays with nutrition, and I think you know it's an important aspect to to acknowledge. And if athletes can can find support networks, then that helps them be the athletes that they want to be. And, and enables them to do everything else that they're doing in a much better, more effective and a more efficient way. Yeah, 100%. Uh, for me, you know, nutrition is that kind of cornerstone on all of it. But it, it also affects just the sustainability of the way that you're doing what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. It's really easy to crash and burn, I think. And, you know, when you're kind of taking care of yourself, and that is everything, that's from what you're eating, yep. how you're sleeping. For me, that includes meditation, stretching. It also then impacts your longevity in sport. And I think yeah. that's the great thing about para sport is that we are able to compete for longer than than yeah. many of our Olympic counterparts. And, and definitely, particularly in Australia, there is that opportunity for transition between different sports. So there's mm-hmm. room to have a really active, healthy lifestyle. Like whether you're competing at a Paralympic level or not, it is super important as someone with a disability to be taking care of so much of yourself in that way and sport plays that great part you know is that access to community it's it's just getting out of your house and and actually kind of getting your heart going and and feeling oxygen in your brain and in your lungs and and just getting out and about has an incredible impact on your mental health as well so for me this is all in the same kind of grouping awareness of what it means to be a healthy and and very productive human and yeah definitely nutrition is the biggest part of that yeah but you've got to get the the athlete in a place where you know their mental health is well looked after as well oh it's like that to me that is that is the linchpin yeah absolutely and I think you know nutrition is such an interesting one because when we talk to some of our athletes who are struggling you know that we've still got sports that still have some pretty archaic views around that and you know I think athletes with disabilities like you can't just see nutrition in exactly the same way you can't just measure certain things in the same way that you would an able-bodied athlete and there's, mm. there's room to kind of really see the person in front of you and to work out what is actually the most important part. If someone is healthy, yep. taking all the right nutrition, like being really fit on every single level and they're hitting their targets, then that's amazing. So, you know, we're, yep. we're still getting a lot of athletes that are being quite body shamed. There's still so much of that happening out there, even though nutritionally they're just doing awesome work. But yeah. you know, we've still got a long way to go to where we understand certainly reproductive stuff so any kind of <laughs> from any sort yep. of like oh, endo like there's so many things that are kind of affecting the way that people are presenting that there's really important um changes i think that needs to kind of happen there so i think even from that nutrition point of view we've still got a long way to go before we stop kind of i don't know demonizing a lot of stuff and making people feel really crap about themselves which is still happening yep. but yeah, when an athlete is feeling good about what they're doing, when their relationships with coaches and teammates are really good, then, you know, you give yourself the best opportunity to have the success you're looking for. You can't you can't control the result, but if you can control everything else and um, yeah. and feel like you're doing a great job and the best that you can and you're happy about doing it, then that's more important than that gold medal, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Well, Danny, I, I think... We've taken up much more of your time than I 
had intended, but it's been a fantastic conversation. I usually ask for if if people have recommendations for, for athletes and for practitioners, but I think we've kind of hit a lot of that. So I'm going to finish up with what's your favourite food? Oh, my favourite food is buckwheat noodle with sliced tofu, mushroom and broccoli, just really just lightly cooked, mm. pretty crunchy. Oh, I could eat that every day. And I think that's one of my problems is like I could eat that every meal for every single day, but I'd probably get divorced <laughs> in about two days. <laughs> ah, a little bit of variety, never went astray, <laughs> but it's good to, good to have some staples that you can come back to when, when life gets busy and you know it's just going to hit the spot nicely. <laughs> awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Danny. I'll let you get on with your day. I would like to come back to you at some point in time and certainly cover a little bit more ground, but I really appreciate how open you've been and the the journey that you've had and what you're contributing back to Parasport. I think well done to you and keep up the good work. That's all I can say. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Liz, and just thank you so much for the opportunity to chat and creating the platform for you know anyone with kind of disability to start talking about and thinking about nutrition because it is a very different landscape to think about and just have always loved your work and really appreciate your passion for our community, not just in Australia but around the world and just thank you again. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Danny's had quite the journey over her many, many years as an athlete as a supporter of other athletes and her experience goes a long way in showing us how individuality can be embraced and used as a strength to move yourself forward. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. As usual, please leave any messages or suggestions on our podcast website. And I hope you join us again next time as we talk to Brooke Lamphere, who is a sports psychologist who has undertaken research in body image in para-athletes. 